Good morning. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. We do want to uh, wish you uh, just a fantastic day. Uh, I know a lot of moms got an early start this morning and they're out enjoying and hopefully you got to sleep in just a little bit. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. If you're a mom, you probably didn't get that. Uh, But hopefully you have great plans for this afternoon and we do want to thank you. You guys are great. Your contribution to the family, to our society, to the church uh, is just incredible. Um, And I want to pray for you in just a moment, but I also want to, as with any holiday that we we come up to, I know that all holidays can bring a little bit of pain, Uh, so I want to pray for those as well who may have lost their mothers or maybe mothers who have lost children. Uh, We do want to lift you up as well. We don't want to overlook that. Uh, And I also know that there might be some, either here in person or online, who desire to be a mother and have been unable to do so to this point. And so we want to pray for for all of you ladies this morning. We're thankful for you moms, and and do take one of those gifts. Uh, We just want to to have a little bit of a token of appreciation to you. Uh, And so as I pray, we're going to be in Esther chapter 4 this morning as we just continue to walk through uh, the book of Esther chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to give if you one, uh, the words will be on the screen, but we want everybody to be able to follow along. And, and basically, we're just walking right through the text. And so it'll really help you to have your Bible with you. All right, so let's pray, and then we'll jump into God's Word. Thank you, God, so much for the opportunity to gather together this morning. Uh, thank you for the, the ability that we have just to come together as your people and to worship you. God, I, I know that there are people here who know and love you and desire to grow in you and be more like you and to be more satisfied in you. God, I also know that there might be people here and, and, and watching online that don't know you, God, and they're seeking. And God, I pray that today they would hear your voice. And Lord, every single one of us would hear directly from you in the way that we need to hear your voice. And so God, speak to us directly from your word. Speak to us in the way that we need to hear. And God, I pray that you would move in each of us in a powerful way. And so God, this morning we just devote this time to you. We ask that it would glorify and honor you, that you would use it. God, we pray for the church of our city and everywhere that your word is proclaimed today, that you would add unto your church and that you would build up your body. And Lord, we do pray for the moms today. We're so thankful for each and every mother and and the way that they uh, interact with our church family and with families and with our culture and society. And God, we're so thankful for them. And I pray that each mom would feel appreciated today and encouraged today. God, I pray that they would get from their family maybe something that they don't always get and that it would just be love and compassion and help and that you would encourage each mom that's here. I pray, God, for those who have lost moms and uh, maybe moms who have lost children and maybe even this year. And so, God, we just lift them up to you and we know that that memories will flood and we know that uh, fond memories may come and then also some hurt. And so, Lord, I just lift each of those moms up, each of those children up. God, we also know that there might be uh, women here who desire to have children, and God, have been unable to do so. And we pray that if it be your will, God, that you would allow them in your timing to have children. And so, God, we give all things to you. We glorify and honor you for all things, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, And so if you've been walking through the book of Esther with us, you know that we're in Persia, the kingdom of Persia. It's about 500 years, a little less than uh, before Jesus would come and live and die on the cross for our sin and rise from the grave to overcome sin and death and the church would begin. Uh, The king of Persia at this time is Xerxes. And so Xerxes or Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus, if you're just reading it in the English uh, translation, um, he is king. 
And he is demonstrating his power as the most powerful king over the most powerful kingdom that the world has ever known. Uh, We've seen him do that in a couple of different ways. One is just with military might. Um, He's getting ready to go up against the Greeks, but he has... And Darius before him and Cyrus before Darius have been great conquerors of much land. They own most of or rule over most of the known world at this time. And they're about to go to war with the Greeks. And so to demonstrate his power, his military might, and also just his ability to provide for his people, he throws this six-month-long party. And all of the leaders in the kingdom of Persia come, and, and it takes him six months to kind of just display all of his wealth and all of his grandeur and all of his ability to, to be sought after and honored and seen as a god and, and to, to be seen as the satisfier and provider of his people. After that six-month military planning party, uh, after he demonstrates all of his power to those who need to go out and to, to raise the army and to get ready to fight and to be on his side, they know that he can provide. They know that he can give their desires. And then he has a seven-day party for all the people in the kingdom of Susa, the capital city, in the kingdom of Persia, to come in and to just enjoy their king, just enjoy their God. And he provides for them. And at the end of that seven-day period, he thinks to himself, man, how do I have more power and more glory and more honor? We've discovered that Xerxes is is power-hungry. He gets his identity out of being given honor and out of being seen as a god. And you actually become enslaved to whatever you're seeking to get identity out of, if that identity cannot actually free you. And so we see that he's enslaved to the people, and he thinks to himself, man, how do I get more of this? I need more of this. It's never enough. His kingdom never gets big enough. He never has enough. He ever, never accomplishes enough. And so he thinks to himself, I know, I have a beautiful queen. Queen Vashti, and I can bring her in here, and I can parade her around, and the men will be jealous, and, and they will worship me in even a greater way. So he calls Queen Vashti in, and of course we know she says no, and we say good for her, right? Um, And so she says no, but that's a big problem for the king because he sees himself as God and he's to be worshiped as God. And that's a big problem for the king's friends, his his advisors, who were actually called his friends, the seven advisors that he had. And, and, um, And they said, this is a problem for us too, because if your queen doesn't listen to you, then what hope do we have? And so he banishes the queen. He basically divorces the queen. He goes off to war with the Greeks. Uh, That battle is not going well. The war is not going well. He would eventually lose as Alexander the Great comes in. And we saw how that really sets up the coming of King Jesus and and salvation in him and the church beginning. Um, But they're losing the war. And so he comes back and he remembers all that he has given up. And he, he's, he's reflecting on his losses and how they're making him feel empty, but he's also reflecting on his victories and how they also are making him feel empty. I don't know if you've ever been in that place in your life before, but it's like no matter what you do and how bad it gets, it feels empty for obvious reasons. But then on the flip side of that, no matter what you accomplish, no matter what you gain, it never quite gives you the feeling that you thought it would. So he's empty, he's reflecting, he's remorseful. And so he decides, along with his, his advisors, his friends, that what he needs is more, right? Clearly, if, if everything that we have isn't satisfying us, then that just means we need more, even if we're the person who has the most, who has any, ever had anything or ever tried to accomplish anything or ever tried to gain anything. Xerxes has more than anyone has ever had, and yet it doesn't satisfy. 
So he just needs more, another accomplishment, another relationship. And so his, his friends say, hey, let's, let's just find you a new queen. Certainly a new relationship would bring you some joy and satisfaction. So he throws this ridiculous version of the Cinderella story kind of thing. And so a little more X-rated version. So maybe think of like a season of The Bachelor or something. Just a really weird way of finding love, okay? And so he throws this, this huge uh, beauty pageant. Esther enters under the guidance of Mordecai, her cousin. And her cousin is kind of acting as her father as her parents have passed away. So she enters and she wins. And she's made queen. And, and it's really more of her being a sex slave. Um, but she's got this position of being queen. And Mordecai gets the position on the king's court. So he is elevated as well. And in so doing, he's able to go into the king's court and he hears this plan, this plot to take Xerxes' life. And he tells Esther and she tells Xerxes. And so Mordecai has saved the life of the king. Esther is the queen. And through all of this, they have been hiding their identity. We need to remember that, that they have not told anybody that they're Jewish. And to be Jewish in the Old Testament was to uh, be a part of the people of God, of Scripture. They were one and the same. And so to believe in the God of Scripture or to be Jewish was to be a believer in the God of the Bible. It was, they, were, they were made a people to reflect to the nations around them what it looks like to be a people of the one true king. God had called them to do this. They had called, he had called them to do this in Jerusalem. And Mordecai and Esther, along with many other Jewish people, were still in Persia, even though the Jewish people were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And we read about in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple and the, and the, and the walls around the temple, the rebuilding of the people. All of the Israelite people should have gone back, but Mordecai and Esther do not. Mordecai and Esther are hiding who they are. So they haven't told anybody, and they've been elevated to these two positions. And last week we saw that when we get into chapter 3, we would think to ourselves, Mordecai's just saved the king's life. What's going to happen to him? How's the king going to reward him? And you assume that Mordecai's going to get a, a new position or some sort of honor. But five years have gone past between chapter 2 uh, three, two and 3, and we find out that Mordecai hasn't been honored at all. In fact, this new character named Haman, he's an Agagite, he has been elevated to second in command behind Xerxes. And the king gives the command that all the people bow down to Haman and pay honor to him. And Mordecai, though he has not stood up for himself, he has not stood up for God, he has not stood up for Esther, he has had enough when it comes to Haman the Agagite. And we saw why that the Agagite people in the Old Testament were actually the ones who first tried to wipe out the Jewish people. And God had told King Saul to take care of the, Ag or the Amalekite people with King Agag, and he didn't do so in the way that God had told him to. And so the Agagite people had continued, and, and now Haman is, is promoted, and, and uh, Mordecai, who's a Jew of the tribe of ben uh, Benjamite tribe, he is, he is, there's no way he's going to bow down. Like, this is where he takes a stand. This is where he has had enough. And we begin to see a heart change, even though I think there is some, some poor motivation behind what we saw him doing last week. But this absolutely enrages Haman. And so he goes to King Xerxes and says, hey, there is a group of people. He doesn't tell them who, right? He's really diplomatic in how he says this. There's a group of people. They have their own laws. They worship their own God. They, they're, they're really no, uh, they're, they're not good for you to allow them to just continue to exist. And so he just said, proposes that they just take them out. 
And Xerxes is so addicted to power that he's just enamored with the fact that Haman would think and give him the power to say, we can wipe out a whole people. He doesn't even ask who it is. He just gives the stamp of approval for it to happen. And so a decree goes out that in the 12th month of the year, all of the Jewish people would be annihilated. Some 15 million Jewish people at this time. Every man, every woman, and every child. And so through this first three chapters, we have seen that the best kingdom the world has to offer with the most powerful king that the world has ever seen, with all of the provisions and all of the things that should satisfy and all the things that we can chase after and accomplish, it is all full of hurt. It's all full of pain, destruction and mistakes and and tragedies and brokenness and sin against God and who he has created us to be. We just see this brokenness after brokenness, this sin after sin, as God has created us to to be one with him and to find community with him and, and to know his love and to love him because he's first loved us and to have everything we were created to have in him and oneness with him. But our sin and rebellion against him actually uh, alienated us from a perfect and holy God. And we began to seek our own kingdoms and 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 be our own kings and make our own ways. And we find ourselves longing for what we were created to have in God. But, but everywhere we turn in the world, it's just brokenness after brokenness. We continue to rebel against God because he is calling us to be in community with him. And he has made a way for us through his son by coming and living and dying and rising that we can place our faith in the reality that he has done all of the work for our salvation and be saved by his grace, be brought back into community with him. And when we're back in community with him, we can begin to understand who we really are. Our identity becomes clear. The way we're created to live becomes clear. We live the way that God has called us to out of freedom and joy, not to become something we are not. But when we find ourselves or seek for ourselves, everything we're created to have in God, in the things that God has created us to give him glory with and to reveal him with, then we only find more brokenness. We only find more confusion. But through all of this and through everything that happens in your life as well, we see through the book of Esther that God is on the move. He's, He's always working. He is always active, even in our rebellion, even when we're in the places that we should not be. This book just continues to reveal this to us, that listen to me, The way that God moves and the things that God does are based on his character, not your work. See, he loves you because of who he is, not because you're lovable. He died for you, not because we deserved it, but it was the only way for us to have, have salvation in him by his grace. We're able to walk in him by his grace, not because we can muster up enough strength to do what is right. And so the job of of us as followers of Christ is not to try harder to do better, but it's to try harder to rest in what Christ has done. And that actually transforms our hearts to desire to long to walk in the way that he's created us to. Because we understand in a deeper and deeper way that he is our greatest treasure, that we're created for him. And in him, there's nothing we can gain that would make us more of what we already are in him. And, And in him, there's nothing we can lose to make us less of what we already are in him. That everything we're created to have is in community with him. And it's all based on his work. And even when we can't hear him or see him or feel him, he is a good, good God who's at work in your life. 
And we see that through the book of Esther just so beautifully. As Esther, as we have seen, points to the better king and a better kingdom than we can ever find in the world. A better way to deal with our sin and rebellion than we can ever pursue and try to to make in our own ways in the world. A better way to deal with mistakes and tragedies. A better way to have community with the people that God has put us around us and a better future and a hope. And today we see in our text that in Christ we have a better treasure to live for a deeper and truer treasure in Jesus. And so in our text today, this is what we begin to see as it really lays this out for us. And so let's look chapter four, starting in verse one. When Mordecai had learned of all that had been done, and so this is important to remember that last week we stopped off at the point that the decree goes out that all of the Jewish people, every man, woman, and child will be annihilated. And we're just reminded so often, I just want to point this out really quickly, we're reminded so often of the way that things tend to go when our pursuit is to find ourselves and our identity in the world. See, Haman is just after power. And to be after power, he has to use people to gain that power. He has to have people to worship him to have that power. He has to be able to squash those who would not give him what he needs to have the identity that he believes he gets out of that power. So he uses people, he abuses people. Xerxes does the same thing all throughout Esther. And what I want us to understand is that when we're seeking our identity in the things of the world, we will be forced to be enslaved to the things we're seeking identity in, and we will use everything and everyone around us to gain it. Some of it will happen to different levels. But Haman is taking it to the maximum. But then we understand that in the gospel truth, because we're saved by the grace of God through his work, that we no longer have to use anything or anyone to gain what we already are in Christ. We don't have to fear losing anything we've already gained or have and and losing who we are in Christ. We're full, as I said, in him. And therefore, we can begin to love because we've first been loved. We can begin to have compassion. We can begin to care for all people because we understand in God that we were created in his image and that he created all of us in his image. We're all equally in his image in different cultures and different races and different languages and different ways of doing different things. We see those things in a beauty in them and we desire to understand them and to come together and have a fuller picture of who we are in Christ, all created in his image. See, this is the way that we view the world through the lens of the gospel compared to how we view the world through the lens of our broken, sinful hearts. So Mordecai has just heard of this decree that goes out. And so Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to actually enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. The king only wants good news. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decrees reached, there was a great mourning amongst the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Just imagine this experience. Uh, Imagine what the Jewish people are going through, those who love the Jewish people and what they're going through, the mourning that would take place upon this decree. Put yourself in this situation. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her that the the queen was deeply distressed, Mordecai, what are you doing? So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. 
Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in an open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasures for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the king's decree that was issued in Susa for the destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her the, and, the, and command her to go to the king and beg favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's promises know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one in whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king's presence for these 30 days. So she hasn't even seen the king in 30 days. No clue when she'll see him again. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise. Now, there's this, this transformation that's happening in Mordecai here in this, this beautiful thing. We'll see it in Esther as well. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found. See, her heart is having a transformation here. Found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And here's one of the most courageous, I think, in human history, things that anyone has ever said from Esther. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered for him to do. So here in our text, we see that the decree has gone out. Every man, woman, and child of Jewish descent is going to be taken out in the 12th month, the month of Nisan. And all the people are going to take all the things that the Jewish people have, and the king will get a portion, and Haman will get the power. And we see in verse 1, as Mordecai hears of this decree, he learns of it. And, and just imagine, as I asked you to, what this decree would mean to you and, and how this decree would make you feel. And then also we have to understand that Mordecai must feel a different kind of weight than even we would in this type of situation. If we're just putting ourselves there and thinking, how would this make us feel? And, and how would it feel if we were the Jewish people in this time or if we have people who were close to us and that we love that were Jewish people at this time. Because Mordecai has also played a role in this occurring. Again, none of this should have happened. Mordecai should not have been there. Haman should not have been in the position that he is in. All of this is happening because of rebellion against God. And so he's carrying this weight. And now he's beginning to take a stand for what is true and what is right. And for the first time in his life, he's not asking the question, what is best for me, but what is most glorious for God? What is right? And whatever may come, I must do what is right. He's come to this tipping point in his life. 
And listen, every single one of us will come to a tipping point in our life where we have to decide, will I continue to hide who I really am and where I find my identity? Will I walk away from who I am in Christ and what he has done for me? Will I not reveal it? Will I hide it? Will it just be for me or will it be to reveal who he is? Or will I take a stand for what is most glorifying to God and most reveals him to his people that we might disciple one another and most reveals him to the city where I am called that people may come to know him? Will I, will I take the stand that is right to give glory to God in all that I am and all that I do? Or will I hide who I am? Am I seeking comfort in the things of the world to have accomplishments in the things of the world, to have reputation in the things of the world? Or do I do what glorifies God no matter what may come? See, Mordecai is coming to this point where it is a do or die situation. There's, there's a fork in the road and he must make the decision. And now in the most visible way that he possibly can, he's coming out as a Jew. He's coming out as someone who believes in the God of Scripture. So something is happening here that we need to see. There's something inwardly happening in Mordecai that's leading to an outward action that we see him take. And we also need, I think, a little context here to understand this outward action so that it doesn't just look crazy to us and we can understand what's going on. Because not very many of us would would just on face value understand why Mordecai is just walking around the city in sackcloth and ashes, why he's weeping and mourning at the king's gate. Like if somebody did that in our city, let's just all confess that would be a little weird. That would look a little bit crazy. We wouldn't really understand what's actually taking place. We wouldn't get the point. So culturally, there's a difference here that we need to understand. But we can relate to devastation that has happened in our lifetimes. We can relate to injustices that have taken place, even over the last year. We've seen in our culture injustices that that hopefully has, has caused each of us to respond in some form of mourning to use the God-given platform and influences that we have to to reveal the love of Christ that that leads to the love of others who aren't like us and don't even maybe believe like we do or act like we do or do the things that we do or from the places we are from. That we use the platform that God has given us over this last year in this injustice and mourning to, to seek justice for all people, not just the ones like us, not just the ones that think like us. See, when we understand the gospel truth and our salvation by grace, it transforms us to desire to reveal the healing that we've experienced in Christ. We desire to reveal the love that we've experienced in Christ, the redemption that we've received in Christ, the, the, the healing and, and bringing and restoring everything that we see as broken in the world because of the rebellion and sin that is in the world as we were created to be in community with God but walked away from that and our hearts are affected by sin, our culture is affected by sin, and the world that we live in is affected by sin. And so when we see the brokenness, the sinfulness, we all cry out, this is wrong. And when we know who we are in Christ, then our, our, an indicative of the gospel truth that we live in is that we would seek to reveal and restore and to heal, show compassion and love the way that we've experienced in Christ. And so I, I hope that that is, has been part of our stories over these last couple of years of each of our lives. This is the story, by the way, that we all long for. It's why we look at brokenness and want it to be fixed. Because we all were created to know God. 
And Sid did break in and, and, and bring destruction in that community. And Christ did come and pay the penalty of our sin and rise from the grave. And in him we can be restored and all things can be made new and one day they will be. See, this is why we like, I mentioned the, the Cinderella story and different things like that. This is why we like stories like that. It's why Hollywood makes most of their money on movies that have this storyline. That everything is going well. Something comes in and destroys everything. A hero emerges and saves everything. And then everyone lives the way that we desire to live. See, this is our story. It's why we like it so much. And it's what every single one of us longs for. And it's made available to us in Christ. We were created to have everything good in him. We did sin and rebel against him. Jesus did come as the hero. And now we can be saved in him. See, this is why we look at the destruction of the world and we desire and understand that we should call foul, but in Christ alone can we actually begin to possibly move towards healing. So listen, while we cannot really imagine someone walking around downtown Winston-Salem and tearing their clothes and walking up to some gate and crying bitterly and weeping out loud because there is a cultural difference here. Even today, when you go to different countries and you travel around the world, people mourn in different ways. And we see in verse 3 that many of the Jews all around Persia were doing the same thing. So while we can't relate to Mordecai in exactly the way he's doing this, listen to me, we can't imagine mourning in the streets, can't we? It's very tangible to us. We've seen mourning in the streets. And for Mordecai, something deeper is happening here. Not only is this a public outcry for change, but this is an inner cry of a change. And this is where we must begin. See, a lot of times we have this understanding that things outside of us are not the way they should be, but we lack the understanding that everything begins to change outside of us when our hearts begin to change inside of us. That the foundation of the problem of sin and brokenness is not out there, but it's in here. And only when we have, have salvation in Christ and are saved by his grace do we begin to understand healing and can we begin to see healing in our community. See, Mordecai is having an inner heart change that's causing a public outcry for an injustice. So for him, this is very important. This is a repentance of his self-sin. This is a, a call to repentance of others who are around him, and this is a call to repentance for those who are against him. It is a call to action for a great injustice that now he is a victim of, but he has also been a part of. And though we will see that he trusts the promises of God, he says that without using the name God, because the book of Esther, is, is, that's done for a purpose. The book of Esther is showing us the providence of God, how he is moving and active and, and living, even when we don't hear his name or see him or, or hear his voice. So the book of Esther does this very specifically, but, but Mordecai implies that, that if we do, do this, there is a promise of God for his people, the Israelite people, that the Messiah will come. And so I know, he says, Haman will not succeed in getting all the Jews. I know that will happen. God will raise up someone and his people will be saved because the Messiah will come. So Mordecai trusts the promises of God, but he is broken over his sin. He's broken over the sin of his people. He's broken over the sin of people against him. And listen to me. I know that we don't like to talk about sin. I know we don't like to talk about rebellion. I know we don't like to talk about repentance. I know we don't like to talk about holiness. 
I know that some of you, because of what I'm talking about right now, may never come back, and that's okay. I'm saying it because I love you. I care about you. I want us to understand the gospel, and I want you to be set free in it, and it all begins with repentance. See, this is a really good and healthy place for us to be, church. Now, we don't have to stay in that and, and, and have it depress us and, and, and cause us to mourn all the time. Because of the grace of Christ, we can actually be set free from it. But we have to, at some point, take the position, and our heart has to have the posture of brokenness over sin, and not just the sin of others. See, we are really good at, at being broken and mourning over the sin of others. And you might look at me in this moment and think, well, my sin isn't like their sin. Yeah, that's part of the problem. That we see our sin is different than other sins. It causes pride in us to well up. And so, see, we need to be a people if we desire real transformation and change, if we desire really to honor God with our lives, to, to really understand his love and community, who are broken over all sin, Period. And it begins with our own hearts. And so Mordecai demonstrates this. Now, because of Christ, we don't have to stay there, but this is a necessary venture for true healing. To be broken over sin, not just because uh, somebody has sinned against us, but to be broken over all sin because it's sin against God. And we desire his glory over all things because that is what we were created for and to find satisfaction in. And this actually begins to allow healing in Mordecai, and it allows us to see other people the way that God sees them. So listen to me. When we find ourselves in Christ, and by his grace, we understand our salvation, identity, and life, that brings true humility. It is my heart's sin. It is the sin of those around me. It is the sin of our culture. It is sin that is against God that is causing everything that we see as broken and only in Christ do we have healing, not in myself and what I have done or anything I can do ever. There's true humility in that. That we begin to see who we are in Christ and not self, completely outside of self. It kills all pride. And listen to me, there is no place for pride in personal healing. To go deeper than that, there is no place for pride at the table of equality in a community. But complete brokenness over sin can lead to an understanding that only in God do we have salvation by grace. And all people are created in his image for salvation in him. And in that humility of that grace, we can begin to mourn over our sin and the sin of the world and seek healing and display that there is actual healing in Christ. True justice can begin to come. So that's what's really happening here. And I know I, I really need to get to chapter 4, verses 13 and 16, these huge moments in the book of Esther. They are the hinge point in the book of Esther. But I feel like we just have to focus on this for just a moment together. Because what Mordecai is doing here is a public display of mourning and repentance and call to action. And while I know that most of us can see what's happening in public and we can, and we can call people to action over the injustice in our community, I also know that we don't have a great understanding of where true justice begins, where real healing begins. It's so natural for us to want to see and change what is outside of us while overlooking the heart issue. And we need to understand as people who need to lead in this as followers of Christ in our communities, because while many things in the public are worth a public outcry. It is foreign to us in many ways at the individual heart level 
and what's required for real change. So we see it at the macro level, but we struggle to see it at the micro level of our own hearts. It's why we we can point out every problem, but we, we find it almost impossible to be honest with ourselves. So everything we can identify in the world, but when it comes to me, I I sugarcoat everything to make it seem better than it is. I put a filter on everything to make it look better than it is. And we have to come to the realization as the people of God that real transformation and change begins at repentance of our own hearts. At the dealing with our own sin in the way that only God can by his grace. So I believe that Mordecai is doing something here that we can all greatly learn from. It's absolutely biblical. It's what we're called to do in the gospel truth. He realizes that the solution to sin in the world begins with dealing with the sin of his own heart. Now, I'm not saying that we all have to walk around in black all the time. I'm not saying that we should start weeping and mourning and wearing sackcloth and throwing ashes on ourselves. But listen to me. We do need to repent to God. We do need a true heart posture of repentance and dependence and humility And we do need to have people in our lives, as we will even see Esther call us to, who would allow us to to truly be known and still love us because of the love that we have in Christ. To walk in discipleship together that we might be coming more like Christ and not hiding how we are not like Christ so that people just think we like him. So people just think we're like him and desire him. And listen to me, if we do not have people in our lives who can walk in this reality with us, who can truly know us, then then hear these words, you will never be truly loved. See, every single one of us desires love. We were created for it. We were created to know it in, in God first and then to love as God has loved us. We all long to be truly known and truly loved, but you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. And you can only love to the extent that you know. And so if you are hiding things and and you don't allow people to know things or or you're only allowing people to know what you want them to know, then, then they may say they love you, but deep down you will always know they truly don't know you. And if we translate that into our community with God and we hide from him and we're not open with him and we're not repentant to him, if we don't understand that we do not judge one another based on what other people are doing, but on who God is as perfect and holy, and we do not have a posture of repentance and humility before him, understanding this by grace alone that we are saved, then we will never understand his love. We will always hide ourselves from him. So Mordecai here, he, he's seeking change in society. He should but he understands that it begins with transformation in his own heart. See, everything changing begins with each one repenting. Now, with Mordecai, he's grieving in public. He's doing this so everybody can see him, and this is critical. He is revealing now who he is. It's all out there for everyone to see, and he could lose his life for doing so. He truly has had a transformation of heart. He's living for something different. This is critical for us to understand. There's a new treasure in his life. He's not worried about his position anymore. He's not worried about the king anymore. He's not worried about his reputation anymore. The stakes are now too high. And listen to me, believer, follower of Christ. The stakes are too high. People don't know Christ People are seeking to be their own king and to build their own kingdoms and they are failing and falling all around us and God has called us to know him, to have life in him, 
to walk in him, to reveal him, and the stakes are too high. There is a greater treasure than anything that we can find in this life, and Jesus is the better treasure. And we are to reveal that with everything we do and with all that we are in the way that we relate to others and in the way we relate to things. See, Mordecai has come to a place where he is displaying who he is and he has new cares and he has a new longing and he has a new desire because he has a better treasure. He's completely identifying with now the people of God. That, that these people would come against the people of God. He understands that now I must move. So he doesn't care what anybody thinks anymore. Mordecai's faith, listen to me, has been activated. And faith is always an internal conviction that leads to an external action. Whatever we believe deeply, we will live out boldly. We will speak with boldness and with wisdom. We've talked about that. In other words, what we believe and put our faith in determines who we are. And every single one of us has faith. We all believe something will give us what we long for. And to the extent that we believe it will satisfy us, we put our faith in it and act in that faith towards it. We all do it. There's only one who can actually satisfy. There's only one who is worthy of our faith. And at this point, Mordecai is all in, identifying himself as the people of God. His faith in God has been activated, and now it is active. And whatever we believe and whatever we hold our faith in, we will live out. If we're not living it out, then it is not faith. It's faith in something else, but it's not in God. Our options are not faith in God or not faith. Our options are faith in something God has created to reveal him and for us to worship him with or God who is satisfying. And so we see Mordecai taking this stand. There's this identity shift here. Xerxes is no longer his provider. King Jesus is his provider. Persia is no longer his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is his kingdom. There's there's transformation here. So for us in Christ, what do we tell or how do we have, or what does it look like in our own lives to show what we have faith in? What are you living out your faith for? Is it being revealed that your faith is in Christ, or is it being revealed in your life in the way that you live that you are walking away from Christ? Only Christ can truly satisfy. So listen, that's how Mordecai is. Really quickly, look at Esther. She sees Mordecai at the gate. She sees that Mordecai is kind of freaking everybody out. So she sends uh, some eunuchs to the gate, some of her servants, and says, hey, Mordecai, here's some clothes. I don't know what you're doing, but like, it's weird. It's unacceptable. The king is not going to be happy. So you need to put on these clothes. So she's isolated. She has no idea at this point. There's no indication she understands that anything is going on. She just wants Mordecai to stop. So Mordecai doesn't accept the clothes. He's, he's a different man. He has different cares. He has a greater treasure. So after he refuses, Esther wants to know what's going on. Why would you refuse? It, you're, re, you're revealing something that we've discussed, not revealing. So something is, is clearly happening, and Esther understands something is happening in Mordecai. What could be so important? And so Mordecai tells Hathik what's happened, gives Hathik a copy of the decree to take to Esther, And then he begs for Esther to move on behalf of the people, ultimately to move on behalf of God. And at this point, there is no indication in Esther's life, along with Mordecai, 
that she would be down for this. There's no praying. There's no talking of God. There's no singing of hymns. It's just doing her, her morning chores. Like, there's nothing taking place that would say that Esther would respond well to this. And at the beginning, she, she doesn't. But we begin to see a real heart transformation now in Esther. So Mordecai says, you've got to do this. You've got to do the right thing. It's no longer about what's most comfortable for us, but it's what's most glorifying to God. And he, for the first time, begins to influence her in the right direction. This is how discipleship works. When we find our identity in Christ, we influence in revealing who we are in Christ and how good and a great treasure Christ is above all other things. And it influences others to understand that Christ is the greatest treasure. And then they begin to influence others. To this point, Esther has not influenced anyone. She's just been a yes person. She's done everything, and that's why she's seen so highly, and that's why she won the beauty contest. She just does everything that everybody tells her to do. But now Esther isn't simply going to follow as she did before, but she begins to influence and lead as well. This is what the gospel does through us. And we don't know when Esther's salvation is. We can't imply that, but we do see that she has a major heart transformation all the way to the point where she says, I've got to honor God, and if I perish, I perish. And so we see a heart transformation, and we don't see it in the text, and I actually love that, because I know many of you, maybe in your lives, you, you have a very extreme testimony, like God radically tore you out of something and, and brought you into his life and his light. But for many of you, you don't. You just kind of went to church, you were very religious, like you were going through the motions, and then you don't even know when it was, but all of a sudden you understood the gospel. And you place your faith in Christ and you really began to be transformed and to live in him in every indication that we have. That's Esther. So look how it plays out. At first, Mordecai says, hey, you've got to act. And she says, well, it's dangerous. Like nobody can go before the king unless asked. And I haven't been asked in 30 days. I don't know when I'm going to be asked again. And this was true. Herodotus tells us in history, beginning with King Diocese of the Medes, that only seven men called the king's friends could enter into the king's court without being welcomed in, without being asked in, without asking permission. They were able to enter into the king's court at any time unless he was sleeping with a woman. And so these seven men are the only ones that can do that. Esther is not one of these seven men. And so she rightly is scared. So Mordecai gives her a little push. He says, don't think that just because you're the queen, you will escape. And then in verse 13, 14, we get one of the most popular, incredible, challenging verses of all of scripture. It may be the most important verse in this book. This huge flashing light that Mordecai's treasure has changed, he's calling Esther to something greater. He says, Esther, maybe all of this has happened not so that we could be our own kings and build our own kingdoms, but because the king of the kingdom has put us here for such a time as this. See, maybe God has a bigger plan here. And, and, and we need to understand that God has put us in this place with these jobs and these neighborhoods, staying home with these kids that we have. For such a time as this, he's gifted us in the way he's gifted us. He's given us the passions that he has given us so that we would live in this time, in this place, in the way that he has called us to, re to reveal him that many may come to know him. That his plan may come to fruition. He's saying here, God is faithful to his promises and he will be faithful to his people. And I don't know what's going to happen to us. We might both die, but I do know we have the option here of either doing what God has called us to and being satisfied in that because that's what we're created for or walking away from God and trying to satisfy ourselves. And there's no hope in that. 
And they're able to do what God has called them to do, not because God will immediately bring justice in every situation, but he will bring justice in the end. And not because he will immediately do everything we want him to in the moment, but he promises that he will be with us in the moment. And we see this in Mordecai and Esther as he says, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know we have a choice. And listen to me, each of us have that choice every day. Will we live for God as he has called us to, or will we walk away from him? Will we hide our identity, or will we reveal it? And the question for Esther suddenly becomes, as it did for Mordecai, not what is most comfortable for me, but what is most glorifying to God. And listen, God doesn't promise anything. We see that. He doesn't even speak to Esther. He doesn't reveal himself to Esther. He doesn't come in a dream or anything like that. And so we see what Esther does. She says, okay, I'm going to take a stand. But gather all the people together and fast and pray. And we don't actually see prayer there. Again, we don't see God in Esther. There's a point to all of it. That God is working providentially in everything without, without us hearing from him or seeing him or hearing his name or it even being in this book. But fasting historically for the Jewish people always is coupled with prayer. It always comes with it. And so we know that she's calling the people to fast and to pray. She's smart. She's calling the church together. She understands, I need help. And, and when the people of God come together for the glory of God to get something done in the kingdom of God, then God moves powerfully through his people. So she calls them together to fast and pray for three days. And fasting is simply setting aside something good for a time to depend greater on God and he be the provision, not the gift. And then when we participate in the thing that we gave up after understanding that he is all that we long for, not the good gifts that he has given us, when we participated in again, we thank him all the more for the goodness that he has given us. And we seek his wisdom during that time. And so we see that this is what Esther wants to do. And so she didn't receive any message from God, but she plans, she fasts, she prays, she seeks the people of God. This is such wisdom for us. If we don't hear from God, here's what I want you to do. There's not something just laid on your heart. Then we ask, what is right? We make plans. We fast. We pray. We bring the people of God. We bring good, discerning wisdom into our life. And so she does this, and she says, then I will go to the king. And we'll see that next week. And she says, the most courageous thing in all of human history, if I perish, I perish. And listen to me. When we understand that there's a greater king with a greater kingdom, that deals with our sin in better ways, that allows us to relate to our community in better ways, that gives us a better hope, that allows us a better treasure to live for, then we begin to understand that there is nothing greater than living for him no matter what may come. That the question to our life is not what is best seeming and feeling for me in this moment for comfort, but what is most glorifying to God, come what may. See, C.T. Studd said this, it's not our duty to stay alive, but it is our duty to live the life we have for Christ. And this is amazing from Esther. This heart transformation that both Esther and Mordecai are having. And they desire to understand that for such a time as this, God has put them in this place and, and that God is moving in their lives that they might have an influence for him and they, they have a greater treasure that's worth more than anything that they could gain or lose in the world. And they are truly set free. They're truly set free to live as God has called them to live. And it says Mordecai does all that Esther had said. And next week we'll see that Esther is going to go and be an advocate for her people. 
She's going to point to the better king who would come and be an advocate for us. That she will mediate between her people and the king, and Jesus would come and mediate between us and our God. She's a picture of Jesus. And God is calling us to image him in everything that we do and to reveal him in all that we are. He is the greatest treasure.